0: Well, what a gift this morning we have to uh, have Sean Gladding here with us. Uh, I know I come thirsty uh, to hear what God has done and to hear his story. How many of you um, have interacted with Sean's book Uh, since we, many of you? So we are so thankful uh, to have Sean here. He's not only an author, but a pastor and a theologian. And just in the time that we have had with him over the last couple of days, I would say, Sean, one of the things that I love so much about you is that you keep company with Jesus and you listen to the Lord. And I have just loved and I have benefited from that gift that you have brought to us. So Sean led our staff retreat on Thursday and Friday, and it was a time for us as a staff where we were spiritually nurtured and stretched in so many ways by Sean's leadership. And so I'm so excited that he is here uh, to speak with us this morning and to share about community. And we gave him a really hard task. We gave him two chapters in his own book to uh, give to us in one message today. So will you welcome him as he comes to bring God's word to us this morning?
1: Well, I'm delighted to be with you all this morning here in Boulder, Colorado. I was delighted to bump into someone from Lexington, Kentucky, I know, in the hall right before this service. So uh, you're obviously a welcoming community. So uh, grateful uh, to Eric for the invitation uh, to be here uh, and to be part of your journey through this epic story that the Bible is telling. And there's Billy. Hello, mate. Good to see you. Um... Uh, and for giving me the week uh, to cover two chapters in 28 minutes, according to the schedule, so we'll see we'll see how that goes. Uh, so let's let's begin just by recapping where you've been in the story already so far. Um, we begin uh, in the first week with the story of creation. Uh, Eric began by reminding us that. Uh, There's not just one story that tells us who we are and what life is all about. There are many, many stories competing for our allegiance, competing for us to give our lives to this story as a way of living. Uh, And some of those other stories uh, can leave us with the impression that we are just here as mere accidents of fate, that that's all why we're here, um, and therefore we are ultimately alone in the universe, uh, and that life really has no purpose other than to make of it what we can before we die. Uh, Far from having no purpose in life, I don't think that's the case. I think if we will consider this story, the story we've received in the Bible, um, that uh, the beginning of the story there that we find tells us something quite different. Uh, We are not here by accident. We are here because of the overflow and the outpouring of the triune God's love in creation that we are made in the very image of God as human beings so we are not alone we were made for relationship both with God and with each other and therefore we also have purpose Uh, and that purpose is given to us in the beginning of the story with this vocation that God has given us, this calling upon our lives to live in such a way together that the world that God loves, the world that is good, will be a place where all of life can flourish, all of life, and to live with God's shalom together. But then two weeks ago we heard that catastrophe struck, um, that we listened to the voice of the deceiver We listened to not the truth of who we are, but something else entirely. And uh, sin found its way into God's beautiful and good world as we began to doubt the goodness of the God in whose image we are made. And we began to doubt the goodness of ourselves as human beings because deep down many of us still live with this fear that who we are is not enough. And we also live with this fear that there is not enough for everyone, that we live in a world of scarcity, so we need to grab all we can while we can and protect it with violence if necessary. And so sin enters this story and tears apart the shalom of God's world and tears apart the human beings that God loves, and things look grim for us. But then God acts, as we heard last week. God acts in the story by making covenant with this family, the family of Abraham, and sets in motion this plan to save the world through a people, the descendants of Abraham, to whom God promises that there, Abraham will have a great big family, that there will be land enough to live in, a spacious and roomy land, and that God gives Abraham God's blessing, not selfishly to hoard, but in order through the family of Abraham, God will bless the whole world. God will bless all the families of the world through this one family, and that we will fulfill our vocation of seeking the flourishing of all that God has made in God's world, and seek the shalom of God, the peace of God together. Well, after trying to help God out a little bit, Abraham finally receives the gift of the son that's been long awaited, Isaac. Isaac has Jacob, who God renames Israel. Uh, and it is Jacob's son, Joseph, who gets us down into Egypt. And that's where we pick up the story this week in the story of community. Well, towards the end of Jacob's life, there is a terrible famine in the region, and his family are at risk for starvation. But there was grain in Egypt thanks to Joseph's management of the economy. And so a grateful Pharaoh invites Joseph to bring his family to Egypt to settle there in the land of Goshen. And there they discover this land that is good for their flocks, and life is really good for them in Egypt. There they settled. But then over time, a new dynasty of pharaohs arose. And instead of seeing the children of Israel as a blessing in their midst these foreigners uh, they see them instead as a threat to national security and so they decide to enslave them in order to control them forcing them to build the great storage cities where the pharaoh will pile up their wealth but even slavery is not enough to quell their fear of the hebrew people and so the egyptians decide to kill all the infant baby boys that are born to try and control them. One mother tries to hide her baby, and that baby boy ends up in the palace of the Pharaoh raised by the Pharaoh's daughter. And his name is Moses. And that's whose story lies at the heart of this week's chapter in the story of God. So, if you want to grab one of your fancy new pew Bibles... Uh, we're going to read from the book of Exodus together this morning. We're going to start in chapter 3, which is on page 49, if you're not familiar with how to find your way around this 1,200 page book. Well, Moses uh, makes a few missteps, ends up not in the Pharaoh's palace, but out in the desert uh, looking after a flock of goats. And in the desert, Moses encounters God when he stumbles across this bush that bursts into flame, but then keeps burning. And as Moses approaches that burning bush, this happens. Chapter 3, verse 1 of Exodus. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. And When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, Here I am. Don't come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then God said... So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites and Hittites, the Amorites and Perizzites, the Hivites and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh, to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. Thus begins the story of the Exodus, the defining experience for the people of Israel the event that would shape their identity more than any other, the event that is commemorated every year at the Feast of Passover. But living as we do a millennia past when these events happened, it's easy for us to miss the world-changing nature of Moses' encounter with God in the burning bush. Because we take the existence of the one God for granted, We tend to believe that God does actually care about us, that when we pray, God listens, and sometimes even God responds to our prayers. That was not the experience for people in Egypt, including the descendants of Israel. There wasn't one God. There were multiple gods, and those gods were distant. They may have had great power, but they had to be persuaded to act on people's behalf. And the people relied on the pharaohs, the sons of Ra, to intercede on their behalf, to get the gods' attentions through offering great sacrifices and for having priests who would engage in all this ritual in order to get the gods' attention. And an amazingly significant part of Egypt's GDP was devoted to all of this. So the idea that there was a god who was actually paying attention To people who was actually aware of their suffering who was concerned about their suffering a God who would come down to address that that was unheard of and for that God to appear to a shepherd in the middle of the wilderness and not to one of the great high priests in a temple in Egypt with all the gold and splendor around them that was without precedent What is happening here is utterly remarkable. Imagine that most of us are familiar with the story of Exodus to to some degree, at least the high points. We know that Moses tried to wriggle out of the job of going to the Pharaoh to talk about all of this on behalf of God. So he went with his brother Aaron to carry the message, let my people go to the man he had probably grown up with in the Pharaoh's palace, the new Pharaoh. We know that he did eventually go and he confronted the Pharaoh and also confronted the gods of Egypt through what we've come to call the Ten Plagues, each of which was a direct attack on one of the Egyptian deities, the last one being the sons of Ra, the ones in whom the Egyptians hoped for their salvation in what we now call the Passover, the night when the firstborn in Egypt were killed including the Pharaoh's own son, while the firstborns of Israel were safe in their homes because they had taken the blood of a lamb and splashed it over their doorposts, so when the angel of death passed through the land, their homes were spared. After this, the Pharaoh finally let the people go. But on their way into freedom, the Pharaoh woke up and said, What am I doing? (laughs) There goes our workforce. And so chased them with his armies. And when they got to the Red Sea, they were trapped between the sea and the might of Egypt. And cried out, and Moses raised his staff. And the waters parted, and they walked through. And as the Egyptians chased them in, the waters came back down over them. And finally, the children of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, were free from slavery in Egypt. Just as God had promised Moses in the desert. So we call this chapter in the story of God the Exodus. God delivers them from slavery, but it becomes all too clear all too quickly that it's not just enough for God to get people out of Egypt. If those former slaves are going to become human beings capable of flourishing, embracing their identity as those made in the image of this God, God doesn't just have to get them out of Egypt. God has to get Egypt out of them. And that gets us to the second chapter, Mount Sinai. So again, if you'll grab your Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 19, which is on page 63. People wander in the wilderness for a while, run out of food, can't find fresh water, complain to God, grumble to Moses, uh, God provides them with manna, There's weird funky flaky stuff It's like bread, brings water from rocks, and eventually they arrive in the wilderness of Sinai, and we pick that story up in verse 1 of 19. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and yet how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation these are the words Moses you are to speak to the Israelites if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession although the whole earth is mine you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation I can imagine More than a few people in the crowd at the foot of mount sinai that day turn around and looking at each other and saying who us really like we're just a bunch of former slaves lost out here in the middle of nowhere how how are you going to do this god how are we going to become this kingdom of priests there's no priests here this holy nation you have to have land we're like we're lost how are you going to do this god how The very same way that God brought them out of Egypt by coming down to meet them right where they are throughout the story of God we don't encounter a God who is distant unconcerned about what's happening to us but a God who continually comes down to meet us right where we are so once again God comes down this time not in the flames of a bush But in smoke and fire on the summit of a mountain how will god turn those who suffered under slavery into human beings capable of flourishing into a holy nation by once again entering into covenant with them by making promises to them and then making promises to god the people living out this company this covenant embodying it together in the way they shared their life and the heart of that covenant are the ten words that God spoke to Moses on the mountain, what we more often refer to as the Ten Commandments. By the way, technically speaking, Moses was the first human being to download data from the cloud onto a tablet. (laughs) But but I digress. Uh, You want to know how you'll become a holy nation? How about we start by not killing each other? How about we start? <laughs> How about we not steal from each other? How about we don't lie about or to each other? How about we stop lusting after what our neighbor has, whether it's their spouse, their family, or their stuff? How about we abandon the worthless idols we saw in Israel in Egypt and give our allegiance to the one who actually gets us out of slavery? How about we just start with the basics and go from there? We'll grab a Bible and turn to chapter 32 of Exodus and page 75, and we'll see how those people go from there. Moses brought those ten words down from the mountain, spoke them to the people, and the people responded, All the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do then moses went back up the mountain for 40 days to receive the rest of the instruction for their new life together but while moses was gone the people started to get a little antsy as we read in chapter 32 beginning at first one now when the people saw that moses was so long and coming down from the mountain they gathered around aaron and said come make us gods who will go before us as for this fellow moses who brought us out of egypt We don't know what's happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they had handed him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Now, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early, sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. And afterward, they sat down to eat and drink. And then they got up to indulge in revelry, which is the PG-13 version of what they got up to. This is one of the more infamous moments in the story, right? The golden calf, most likely one of the idols they were seen all over Egypt. The bull god, Apis, one of the Egyptian fertility gods. I've no idea why Aaron chose that particular idol to fashion, but when he hears the people say, "This is these are your gods, O Israel, the ones who brought you out of Egypt," he latches onto that and says, "Yes, that's right." And tomorrow. We will hold a feast unto the Lord, Yahweh. Moses tries to identify this idol with the God who brought them out of slavery, already breaking the second word about not making idols. But it seems that people are much more interested in the fertility God that this idol represents than the God who freed them from slavery, and their feast turns into something else entirely. Well God tells Moses what's going on and then God says, "Step aside, Moses, I'm going to destroy that people and instead I will make of you a great nation." And I often wonder if Moses paused and was tempted to let God do that. It'd be pretty sweet. But he doesn't. Instead Moses argues with God, interceding on behalf of the people, imploring God to change God's mind about this destruction. And God does change God's mind. It would seem that Moses has begun to understand what it means to be a kingdom of priests, people who will intercede on behalf of broken, sinful people and ask God for mercy for them. But then when he gets down from the mountain and sees for himself what they are getting up to, he throws the tablets to the ground, shatters them, symbolizing their breaking of covenant with this God. And then he grinds that golden calf into powder, pours it into the waters, and makes the people taste the bitterness of their betrayal. And then he confronts Aaron about this whole business, and this just possibly might be my favorite moment in the whole of the Bible. Aaron, brother, what were you thinking? Well the people gave me some gold and I threw it into this fire and out came this calf. I utterly relate to that. The description of what he did is they gave him the gold, he cast it into the form of it and he shaped it with a tool. But when he's confronted by what he's done, he says, I don't know, I just threw it all in the fire and out came that calf. Nothing nothing to do with me just happened some of you have had that incident with your children recently <laughs> the golden calf story is kind of stuck in a strange place in exodus it's utterly out of order um, what precedes it is these multiple chapters describing the instructions for building this tabernacle this tent of meeting And then there's the story of the golden calf. And then there's the description of the people actually making the tabernacle. And I think it's put in out of order in order to sort of contrast their radical disobedience with what they did with the calf with then their radical obedience with making the tabernacle. This place where once again God will come down to meet with them right where they are. This time to dwell in the midst of the people. The cloud leaves the summit, moves on to The tabernacle and the glory of the God of the Lord fills it well that's the story of God for this week boom Exodus chapters 1 and 2 of community but it's not only the story of God right it is the story of us even though we're millennia removed from that story we've received it we're part of that story so where does our story in Boulder Colorado in 2018 where does it intersect with this story back in Egypt, from all those thousands of years ago. As I prepared to be with you all this weekend, uh, this is the part of the story that really uh, stuck out to me. The descendants of Israel arrive in Egypt because of Joseph. Uh, he was able to save his family from starvation caused by this horrendous famine. Uh, and in the beginning, Egypt was their friend. like. Egypt made their life possible again. But in time, Egypt would become their oppressor, making life utterly miserable for them. And I wonder this morning if any of us know something about that. I wonder how many of us have welcomed something or someone into our life who made life seem wonderful once more, who made life seem possible again, something or someone that maybe brought us joy for the first time in a long time, or peace that we needed, or escape from something, or distraction, or whatever else we needed at that time. Only for us to begin to discover that that thing or that person began to demand more and more from us. That it went from being a friend becoming a tyrant and actually began to make our life utterly miserable. That's how most addiction and compulsive behavior starts. I don't know anyone who wakes up one day and thinks, you know, I think I'll become a heroin addict. But I do know people who have surgery and get prescribed opioids for pain relief and they really, really like how those pills make them feel And then the prescriptions run out and they find other ways to get what they need until that runs out. And then someone introduces them to heroin as another alternative. And they become enslaved to it. So many of us live with pain. Physical pain, emotional pain, spiritual, psychological pain. We suffer for all kinds of reasons. And then one day we discover that alcohol changes the way we feel and we really like that feeling. Or we discover painkillers that don't just suppress the pain but actually make us enlivened, (laughs) make you think like you could write that next book. Or we discover pornography and that it takes our loneliness away for a while. Or that here in Colorado, a little pot eases the stress that we're carrying so we'll get a little more. Or that that relationship that we're in makes us feel wanted, adored, or at least just noticed. Or that game app we loaded on our phone that we just play for a couple of minutes and then wake up an hour later because we had to beat the game because we want to be a winner because we feel like a loser. Or that promotion at work that came unexpectedly that made us feel wanted and valued in our company but began to take us away more and more from the things that were really important to us deep down. And at first, we welcomed that new friend into our life because of what they did for us, the way they met a particular need, the way they numbed the pain. But then over time, our friend, our new friend, began to demand more and more from us until we woke up one morning, just noticed that we were no, it was no longer serving us, but we were serving it. My guess is, One or two of us here this morning know that experience all too well. Or we love someone who does. And we're watching what's happening to them and it's tearing us apart. And my guess is some of us here this morning are carrying that not openly, but as a secret. And we are terrified that people will find out that that drink we have is not just one drink or two drinks that when we get on our bike to ride in the mountains, it's not just because we're an outdoorsy type, but we're running from something, that we want to make ourselves so tired that we'll fall into bed because our dreams haunt us. And so we live in bondage to all kinds of things, alcohol, painkillers, pornography, relationships, work, exercise, food, our phones that are always demanding our attention. Or anything else that promised to take away the pain that we felt, but which ultimately just began to add to it. This is the story of God, the story of us, but it wouldn't be the story of God if there was not good news. So hear the good news this morning, my friends. God still hears the cry of the oppressed. God is still aware of our suffering and is concerned about it, and God still comes down to set people free from whatever they're living in bondage to. God can get you and I out of Egypt, whatever our Egypt is. And the invitation for us as a community is to enter into covenant together with this liberating God so that together, together we can begin to get Egypt out of us and to live into that freedom that is promised to the sons and daughters of God, which is our birthright, to live into the shalom and the peace that we long for. So here's the thing. For some of us this morning, this is our story, and we know it. We long to be free, but we are afraid to tell the truth. We're so afraid of judgment. We feel so much shame already, we anticipate what's going to be added by telling it to someone else. So even when people notice the changes that are happening in our life because of our new friend and confront us about it, we're more likely to talk like Aaron. and We won't say got this gold and I fashioned it with a tool and I turned it into an idol and it's killing me, we're more likely to say, I don't know, I I just threw this gold in the fire and out came this calf. It's not my fault. If that's you, if you long to be free from whatever it is that you are in bondage to, then take courage. Ask for courage. Pray for courage. And then find someone you trust and tell them the truth about your friend and what it's doing to you. Because the truth will set us free. And there is an opportunity in this story for you all as a congregation to ask some difficult questions of yourself. First and foremost, is it safe for people to tell their secrets here? Do we greet people who reveal painful things about themselves with love and acceptance and understanding and the offer to walk alongside them as they seek to partner with God in getting that Egypt out of them? Or do we greet such confession with horror or judgment Or shame remember God calls a people not a random collection of individuals having their own personal experiences but a people we are to be liberated together in fact that's the only way we can be liberated is together God can get us out of Egypt And God will get Egypt out of us. And I promise you, as one who spent many, many years in my own Egypt, and now for the last 17 years has continued to try to partner with God and my community in getting Egypt out of me, the truth will set you free. Thanks be to God. take a few moments to continue to listen to whatever God might want to say, and then we're going to pray together.
0: Loving Father, thank you for this word, your word that speaks into deep places in our lives. Thank you for your love and kindness to us, that you have given us to life together. You have given us to one another. God, we thank you that you are aware of us, that you are the one who is concerned about our suffering and bondage, and that in your great love, you have come down to rescue us in Jesus Christ, that you have drawn near by your spirit and you constantly abide with us. What an amazing grace that you desire to give us freedom from bondage, rest from suffering and striving. So Lord, as we take a moment to be still with you and what we have heard, would you give us courage to be truthful first with you, to be open before you, God, we thank you that as you look at us, you look at us with eyes of love and grace and adoration. And God, because of that, we pray that you would give us courage to share these things with someone trusted, someone safe. Thank you that you call us to that kind of life. And by your grace, we pray that you would make us a people who walk alongside one another in grace and in hope for flourishing and abundant life. Would you continue to make us a people of freedom and shalom because of your great love? Because we all know in our story what it means to be poor and powerless and lost and lonely, thieves and wretches, blame casters, idol worshipers. But God, You are the healer. You make beautiful things out of what is broken. You restore and redeem. You bring glory to your name. So help us not to be afraid. God, in your great love for us and the world, we acknowledge that the world in which you have placed us and called us and sent us is a hurting place. There are refugees, refugees seeking home. There is a tsunami destroying land and life. There is a national political strife that touches individuals and families, disease and loneliness and lack of hope, creation and human relationships and truth broken and filled with pain. So God, we ask you to come down and draw near, to bring your rescue, to give wisdom. We need you. And God, even as people who need you so desperately to heal us, we ask, God, that you also would use us to be people of shalom even as you send us this week. God, would you have your way in us that we might also be people of hope and grace, the love of Jesus Christ to this world in which you have placed us. Have your way in us.